Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moran. So this week on the podcast, we have the brilliant Paul Howard. Paul is the creator of Ross O'Carroll Kelly, one of the most popular fictional uh, books um, that Ireland's probably ever produced. It's kind of incredible the success and the span they've had. Um, there's been tons of books, there's been tons of plays uh, produced by the brilliant Landmark. And um, Paul's also written two musicals. That's how I met Paul. Uh, in 2012, he made Anglo the musical, uh, and we are currently collaborating on Copperface Jackson musical, which uh, is in its final week at the Olympia Theatre as you listen to this. We close on August 12th, so it's your last few chances to get in and see it. It's probably the most fun I've ever had on stage. The show's been just getting rave reviews, standing ovations, literally, without exaggerating at all, every single night. I've never seen anything like it. It's kind of incredible, and um, it's all, it's one of them shows where it's all about the script I mean it's kind of impossible to mess it up Uh, so that's just been amazing as well as that Paul's um, done loads of non-fiction work Um, he's a four time Irish book award winner um, which is kind of incredible and just a really really nice fella and someone I'm so glad that I've got to know over the last few weeks so as I said come out and check us uh, in the Olympia Theatre for the last week at Copperface Jackson Musical it's been such a ball and I guarantee you you'll have a brilliant night uh, if you make it out to us over the last week Um, other than that let's get stuck into it the brilliant Paul Howard playing personality bingo with Tom Moran Paul Howard, ready to play Personality Bingo? Yes. Let's do it. All right, so a quick explanation of how it all works. Uh, so I've got 60 minutes on the clock, uh, 60 questions here, uh, and a bingo machine with 60 balls inside. <laughs> I've also given you five numbers in that sheet of paper, but right. you do me a favour and read out the five. Yes. Four, Yes. 22, yes. 49, okay. 15, right. and 53. Thank you very much. And would you do me another favour and yes. pick a sixth number, something between one and 60 that's not already there? Okay. You can scribble that down and tell and me what you're going to go it's for. It's 19. 19. Any reason? No, it was just the first number that came into Yeah, head. going off instinct. That's a good tactic for this. Completely random. Um, brilliant. Right, let's give it a spin. See what comes out. Oh, yeah, we're having some technical issues here. <laughs> Should have gone somewhere the, better than Argos. The technology is amazing, can I just say. I'm really surprised by this. We'll edit all this. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Finally. Here we go. First out the gate, we have number 50. Do you have it? Uh, I don't. No, no worries. Number 50. When was the last time you wrote a letter? Um, the last time I wrote a letter. I wrote one on Sunday. I write, see, I, I do write letters like I haven't. Uh, I, 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 I think all the old ways are coming back, right? Mm. I, was, I walked by the old Irish press building on the way here today. I think the Irish press is coming back, like, you know. So I, I keep waiting for it to be the 80s again. But I still write letters. I'd actually sooner sit down and write somebody a note than send them an email. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I would, yeah. And um, I wrote a letter on Sunday night to... Uh, a, a very kind gentleman in Kerry who'd written me a letter to say he enjoyed my last book and I just I wrote him a letter back but I'd much sooner do that I just find it much more personal you know than um, than writing an email totally um, yeah because so, it's amazing when you get a card or something and you, you get that feeling yourself and you're like Gosh, I need to do this, but yeah. I'm, I haven't gone the step that you've gone to actually put it into practice. Yeah, I buy note cards all the time and um, 
and and just you know if I'm, a, if I'm in a card shop and I see cards that I like thank you cards or something like that I'll pick up a, a box of those you know and I'd spend maybe two hours a week just sort of handwriting letters to people who who take the time to write to me you know so yeah it's not it's not a lost art in my house you know I still do it all the time that's amazing am I right in saying that okay if, if someone wants to give you a compliment about a book or a play or whatever it is they might write a letter whereas if they want to have a go they'll write a tweet have you ever got a critical letter yeah I mean the letters you know critical letters tend to be anonymous you know mm. uh, like so sometimes newspapers attract very very uh, extreme people and <laughs> You know, so sometimes if I if I write a Ross that somebody, uh, you know, might find blasphemous or something, or I might use the word the word Jesus Christ, the words Jesus Christ in it or something mm. in a way that they think is blasphemous. They'll they'll write me an anonymous letter, but what they often do is they they actually write the letter around, like they tear out the column from the paper and they write the letter on the actual piece of, on the sheet from the from the magazine yeah. and they sometimes might put a prayer card in or a miraculous medal or something like that wow. um, so I just put them in the bin like I don't even look at them they just as soon as I see the miraculous medal or the prayer card that just goes straight in the bin or in the fire you know yeah and uh, but no I, but most I mean that happens maybe once a year or something I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't mm. say it happens often at all um when I worked in the Tribune uh, so when I worked in the Sunday Tribune, this is sort of the days before um, before email. So the only way to get to a journalist was to write to them or uh, to ring them. And I remember there was one kind of letter we used to get all the time. Right, if you write, if you write, all that all that glisters is not gold. Um, if you use that uh, idiom or cliche, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you will get at least 20 letters from people telling you that the true Shakespeare quote is all that glistens is not gold. Um, so so that was one. And actually, I remember we used to do it for fun sometimes. We used to just put in all that glistens is not gold just to see how much, how many irate yeah. uh, Shakespeare fans were out there. Yeah, make them waste the price of a stamp, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. brilliant. All right, let's give another spin. All right, next day at the gate, we have number 53. Do you have it? Yes, I do. Oh, well yes. done. That's a good start. I can give that a tick off. Right. Nice one. Only five do I, do I cross that out? Yeah, you can cross that out. Okay. Nice one. Um, okay, here we go. Film, theatre, music, comedy, concerts, galleries, anything like that. What is the greatest piece of art you've ever witnessed? Oh, um, God. It is a horrendous question, I admit. So it's it, give me them again. It's it's theater, film, theater, music, comedy, art galleries, concerts, a gig, some live ex- experience you'll never forget. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many, you know. But I mean, the, the I think the the theater experience that I enjoyed most uh, is definitely um, Book of Mormon. Yeah. Uh, I ne- I've never seen anything. I've never seen anything like it. It's like incredible. you know, it was, Did you see it in London or in New York? I saw it in New York. Yeah. 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 And um, we were Mary and I were just passing the theatre one night, and we we'd heard about it, but we didn't have tickets, and they just put house tickets on sale at the last minute. So we got we got seats to see it, and um, and it was uh, I I've never laughed so much in my life. And also there is that thing of you're also thinking how how are they getting away with this? Know. <laughs> you know how <laughs> how on earth can you say such politically incorrect things? And and people are all around the theatre are just rejoicing in it, you know. And and do you uh, have an do you have an answer or a theory on why you think that is? 
It's all about context, you know, and it is that thing. It's that thing that I mean, it, it's made by the the writers of South Park, and um, th- th- some of the things they say on South Park are just um, you know you couldn't say in any other medium. You know, mm. I remember that there's, there's, there was that story a few years ago about that woman on Twitter who said she was going to South Africa um, from America and she had a layover in in London and. She got on Twitter and she said something about, I hope I don't get AIDS. Yeah. I probably won't because I'm white, which actually is very much a South Park kind of gag, you know. And and if you saw it in South Park, you'd laugh. And as it happened in her case, it ruined her life. You know, when she arrived in South Africa, she'd been sacked while she was in the air, you know, and her whole life was turned upside down by this. And it's true. There's a, there's a, you know, there is a context in which you can say things and in which you can't. So... Um, and I suppose for for a comedy writer, it's always about trying to find the biting point, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe push it a little bit more than you should. Um, uh, but but it is it's always a danger there, you know, especially you know in the current age where it, justice is instant on social media. You know, it's it's you know you you say something that pushes the envelope, and uh, you're immediately censored and you're immediately shut down and it's kind of terrifying you know and I, I suppose we're all not just comedy writers everybody is just one ill-chosen remark away or one badly chosen word away from ending their you know their career or you know turning their life upside down and um, it's kind of terrifying because you know in this day and age with social media there's never been more pressure on people to be constantly talking constantly communicating constantly saying things and yet the price for saying the wrong thing has never been higher. Um, and and it's, it is terrifying. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I love listening to old comedians like um, like Lenny Bruce, um, you know, who, who went to jail for the right to say motherfucker, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. that um, and, and in those days it was the censoring was done by by the authorities, you know, and um, by by the conservative establishment. And now it's done by us, you know. Now we, now we, the people, uh, censor ourselves and censor each other. And you know, we're far more unforgiving, I think, in that regard than than you know the authorities that Lenny Bruce came up against. Yeah, it's kind of it. It even and it's even there's a thing of you can be. I don't want to say like guilty by like implication, but for example, like there, there's certain people. And you know you'll see them follow someone on Twitter or something, or yeah. or, or you'll or, or you'll, you'll be conscious of someone that you're following on Twitter. And you're like, hmm, I wonder does that like sync up with like like the views of my community? You're just hyped, like you're yeah. kind of always drawing the spider web. Like, yeah. where am I fitting in? And yeah, and it's peer pressure. You know, it is. It's it's like a it's a, like a big a, a big playground. You know, and if you don't follow the cool people and agree with the cool people on everything, uh, and if you don't you know, uh, you, use the correct language or, it, you know, it, 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 it's, you're in trouble. And it is, it's, um, and like I said, it is, it's far more unforgiving than, than it was, say, 50 years ago because you're being, it's peer pressure. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, like that, you could, you know, you could like some, a comment on Twitter, just like a comment that somebody else made and suddenly make 
the national news. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's it is a terrifying, terrifying uh, vision of the future. You know, I mean, I don't know what it's going to be like in twenty years' time. I don't know where the social media thing is going to go. I know a lot. You know, more and more reasonable people I know um, are getting off it because, like that, the pressure to to conform um, and to pr- the pressure to be somebody you're not as well. I, you know, the virtue thing on that sort of virtue signaling thing on Twitter, especially gets to, really sort of gets to you after a while. You know, the fact that, you know, something happens in the news or some some great event happens like, you know, repeal the eighth or um, gay marriage, you know, things things that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime, you mm. know, like a really, really amazing, momentous things. But then you feel, well, I haven't actually said anything publicly on this on Twitter. And the pressure just to sort of say something, just to let people know that you you feel a certain way about this thing. It's just huge. And it's so dishonest. Well, yeah, it is dishonest. And I I think it's really boring as well. I'm talking about the the sort of the general need to sort of seek uh, approval uh, for for certain positions, you know, because... Mm -hmm. None of us is 100% virtuous. There's no such thing. And we, we learned this, you know, I, I grew up in a country, uh, you know, that was where, where priests made the laws. I, I went to a school called Archbishop McQuaid National School. You know, I know from my past experience that there is no such thing as virtue. And people who pretend they're virtuous are just, pretend, who say they're virtuous are just pretending. Uh, and it's, you know, and, and it's just pressure. It's just a pressure to you know, constantly state your views. I just find it really dull. Yeah. Just find it really, really dull. Yeah. Totally right. Let's give it another spin. All right. Here we go. Number 16. Do you have it? Uh, I don't. No. No worries. Number 16. Uh, what kind of a teenager were you? <laughs> stressed. <laughs> just stressed. What were you stressed time. about? Malnourished and stressed. <laughs> I was stressed about everything, you yeah. know. Like I was just stressed. My dad, my dad is stressed, uh, and I, I can say that because we we laugh about it, you know. Like I come from a family of of just generally stressed people who right. are stressed by the world and stressed by life. Um, you know, my dad is my dad is really really time obsessed like you know so if you say I'll be there at 6 o'clock at 10 to 6 he's looking at his watch saying he's going to be late he's already anticipating you being late you know yeah. and I had I, I've inherited that like you know I, I've either it's either a learned behaviour or or um, uh, it's in the genes or something but I was very stressed I mean I'd say from the time I was a kid uh, to the to the, probably my mid-twenties I would say I was just in a permanent state of stress um, about everything from like you know when I was at school it was you're never ever going to get a job when you leave school um, you know f- a very nervous kid like you know I was really I couldn't I couldn't read in front of the class or anything like that like I was just nervous about stuff like that and just generally full of worry like, yeah, you yeah. know pointless worry uh, and uh, and skinny like you know and that, that might have had something to do with the with the worry but I couldn't no matter what I ate I just couldn't put any weight on so I just looked really really malnourished all the time yeah um, so that's I'd say that's the kind of teenager I was you know just nervy and, and stressed and um, 
I suppose, like I grew up in I, I grew up in the seventies and the the early eighties when it was a pretty miserable time to 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 live in Ireland. You know, like mm. you were, you did have a sense. Certainly, when I was at school, most of my friends knew they were emigrating uh, when they left. You mm. know, um, we had a school reunion uh, about five years ago, and I think there was like. 15 people from the 120 people in our class were there because most of them were either in England or America. And that's what the 80s was like. So it didn't kind of breed that sort of sense. Like when I when I look at um, when I look at young people now, if I go and do some read, I do a lot of like Russell Carroll Kelly readings in colleges and schools. And when I meet young people now, they're completely different to the kind of kid I was or the kind of kid my friends kids my friends were as well you mm. know like we would never I don't rem- I don't think I made eye contact with anyone until I was about 22 or 23 right. you know I couldn't maintain eye contact in a conversation because I was just I just kind of had that sort of complex or something which is a very kind of Irish thing I think mm. um, and so what was it in the mid 20s or whenever you came out of that that brought you out of it um, I think I think mixing with adults, like, you know, when I went to, when I left school, I worked in a, I worked in a postcard factory in Cabinteely and, uh, and it was great because I went from kind of just being around kids all the time, like in school to suddenly being around grown men, you know, and you suddenly learn to speak up for yourself and, you know, uh, and then, and then when I went into newspapers as well, it was you couldn't be you couldn't do the job of a journalist if you weren't confident in some way and i suppose i learned it like you know i um you know to go to be able to go to press conferences and ask questions and you you know you might be the most hated person in the room for asking that question but mm. you've got to ask that question like that kind of thing would that sort of just teaches you and i suppose it's maturity really you know it, that's that's what it was i think because mm, I, I just listening to you talk previously about Going into Vincent Brown was, yeah. and he was, you know, he could be roaring and screaming, and and but you've seen all that going on with other journalists, and like this is where I want to be. Yeah, that yeah. seems oppositional to the who you might have been, say, ten years previous. Yeah, and I, I think when I, the first time I went into the Sunday Tribune newsroom, um, this was all going on. Like I was freelancing for a newspaper called Southside, and they were based in the Sunday Tribune building so it was the same newsroom floor and I brought my copy in I'd written a story uh, for Southside and I brought it in hand typed and handed it over and um, Vincent Brown was screaming at somebody from his office and Gene Kerrigan was there and uh, Ger Barry um, you know people like Mike Malott Kevin Dawson um, you know David Walsh Paul Kimmage like that mm-hmm. that was that they were the people I was looking at and uh, I remember Ken Finley, the editor of Southside, said to me, you know, would you be interested in just staying for four hours and doing a half shift here? And it was a kind of Friday night, about seven o'clock, I think. And just I never wanted to leave. Like I just, I just it's just the buzz of the place, the excitement of the place, the the hurly burly people screaming at each other, people working to deadlines, the stress. I just, you know. I, I didn't want to be anywhere else, you know. Didn't yeah. want to go back to the postcard factory. If if that question hadn't been asked, if you hadn't said, "Will you stay on for the four hours?" I know it's almost an impossible question to answer, but give it a go. What would your life look like? Do you think? I, I think I probably would have done it anyway. Okay. You know, I, I they offered me an apprenticeship in uh, in the postcard factory as a as a plate maker, and 
at the time it was the late 80s, it, you didn't turn down a job easily, like, you know, without a lot of soul searching. And especially an apprenticeship, because that was the thinking at the time that if you got an apprenticeship, you had a trade. And if you had a trade, you'd never, ever be unemployed. Now, as it happens, the way printing went, the way that industry just completely changed within about five years, plate making was was obsolete. You know, it just basically didn't exist anymore. Um, but I turned it down and I remember being really, really nervous telling my mother and father I was I turned down this apprenticeship or I was going to turn down this apprenticeship because, you know, I think my dad and my mum's big fear for all of us was that we would be unemployed, that we wouldn't get work uh, and we'd have to go away. And um, so uh, I probably had already made the decision then that I was I was going to be a, I was going to be a journalist no matter what it took I wasn't I wasn't going to fail mm. and then if I can move that question on the few years to then when the, the Ross books start happening yeah do you think you'd still be working you know sports sports writer for a paper if the Ross books hadn't happened and you hadn't moved into the whole you know fiction world oh yeah yeah because I never ever wanted to write books like you know I never ever I, I only ever wanted to be a sports journalist it's the only ambition I've ever really had is to be a sports writer. I wanted to be a sports writer from the time I was about 11. Mm. And um, the books thing was something that just happened completely by accident. You know, I I started writing this column, Ross Carl Kelly column for a laugh on a Friday to send up schools rugby. And then it, with the Celtic Tiger kind of took off and suddenly I was writing more about the Celtic Tiger than rugby. Uh, and they moved the column then into into the news section and then people started to say this is social commentary this is social satire which was kind of news to me at the time uh, but then you know I, I put I put a load of the columns together in a book and it did you know reasonably well and then another publisher came to me the O'Brien Press and said they wanted to publish the next one and then I eventually got a deal with Penguin and uh they, they, I mean, the whole success of Ross and Carol Kelly, I never, it's it's still a surprise to me. Like mm. I never, I never ever expected to take off like it did. It certainly was never in my plan that I'd become a full-time author. But about, um, it must be 12 years ago now, um, Penguin, uh, I did, I got a book deal with Penguin and it just kind of suited me at the time to do it full-time. I'd been writing the books uh, in my spare time while trying to hold down a full-time job. So I was doing them in the evenings. I was writing at weekends. I was taking, say, a month's holiday at a time to finish it a book. I took one book with me uh, to the Olympics in Athens in 2004, and I was trying to finish it while I was there, and I was doing sort of eight, 17, 18-hour days between the book and my day job, which was covering the Olympics. And I kind of knew... I couldn't keep that up. I knew something had to give. So when I got the deal with Penguin, I just said, well, I'll do it. I'll take a two-year sabbatical from sports journalism mm. and just see how it goes. And then I never went back, you know, and now the business is just so different to the business I worked in. Like, it's not it's it's not the same anymore, you know. Like, first, firstly, the Sunday Tribune, the paper I worked for, is gone. Yep. Um, and... It's a it's a totally different discipline now covering sport to to the one I remembered. We, I mean, we used to when I was writing about sport, you cover a match and you you were filing a piece for the next day, and the next day actually seemed like that that was kind of almost like now there is no next day. Yeah. It's instant. You know, nobody wants to read what happened in the match yesterday. 
uh, today mm -hmm. because they read about it yesterday or they watched the match. And the, the whole concept of time, you know, as it relates to the media has changed now. You know, there's everything is rolling news now. Everything is instant. Judgment is instant. If somebody plays well, they're the greatest player in the world. If somebody plays badly, they're the worst player in the world. And then it doesn't matter if you're wrong because you can you can change your mind tomorrow. Mm. Um, and uh, it's a lot less considered, I think, um, than than it was when I was writing for newspapers. So I, I, if I went back and did the job now, I'd probably need to retrain or something or I'd probably discover I couldn't do it anymore. Is there ever a part of you that feels like because that was your boyhood dream and now you're doing something that's kind of wildly different in terms of, you know, you're a author and a playwright and a, you know, all yeah. this sort of stuff. Do you ever feel on some level that it's not a betrayal, but is there that pull of like, this is what I wanted to do and now I'm doing this completely other thing? Yeah, there, there is, um, you know, there are, there are times when I really miss it. Like, you know, I really, really miss it. But the last few years um, I was covering sport, I was writing so much about drugs and doping. I, I had definitely fallen out of love with sport. Um, by the end. And I know, you know, at a certain level, that's a good thing because I, I think you can get too, you can get too close to it. You know, if you if you love it, then you sometimes can forget your responsibilities, which is to tell the truth. Yeah. And I find a lot of sports journalism that I read now uh, is really just promotion. It's about, it's just like, Sports. A lot of sports journalists have just been sucked into the whole production of it, you know, and promoting matches, uh, and a lot of the time telling lies. And you know, the the I went off to cover the Olympics in two thousand and four, and I had uh, I think I had something like sixteen books with me, and like thirteen of them were about drugs, and. I could pronounce chemical names that were like 12 syllables long and, and and I wouldn't even stutter as I was saying them. Like it just so much of what I was writing was about doping. Um, I saw I was sitting on a bus with Paul Kimmage at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney and we were going back to the Olympic Village one night and um, four or five athletes got on and it was really, really hot day in Sydney and they had their shirts off, you know, and their backs were just completely covered in acne, just completely covered in acne. Like it was like looking at human pizzas, you know, <laughs> and that's, you know, acne on your back is a is a sign of um, of steroid use, you know, and it was just how open it was that really shook me that it was they, they weren't hiding their torsos or anything. It was kind of like, you know, this is. This is what we do. So you go into journal. I think you go into sports journalism. Most people do because they love sport rather than because they love journalism. Mm -hmm. And the longer you do the job, the more you realize. Well, in my case, the more you realize your responsibilities as a journalist and not as a sports fan. But I think too many journalists uh, are fan are essentially fans. And you know, I'm, I'm I just was watching the coverage of the Tour de France over the last few days and. You know the 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 really really meek coverage of of the Sky Team. I mean, this is the Sky Team. I don't know how you can talk about Garant Thomas's victory in the Tour de France without reference to, um, you know, the the backstory, his team's backstory, what's happened in the last two years, uh, in relation to his team and his te his teammates. Um, and, and there's a lot of that in sport and, and uh, you know, so I don't miss that. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't miss the pressure, you know, to be 
you know, to be in a in a newspaper office and to actually write about something that I didn't believe in mm. uh, from the point of view of somebody who did believe in it. Well, that's what I was struck by earlier. We were talking off, Mike, but you were saying when you were a sports journalist, you knew a lot of sports people, whether it be footballers or whoever it was. Does that then make that pull of that if you have to, you know, as you said, if your um, job is to tell the truth yeah. and if you have to tell the truth about, you know, a colleague or a mate or someone who you're familiar with, was that pull there to be like, well, if I have a go at so-and-so and then I'm going to bump into them on yeah. the, the circuit, is that a thing that... The bumping into them never bothered me much. Like, you know, I mean, I, co- I covered, for instance, I covered the Michelle Smith case, you mm. know, and I was, you know, one of the journalists from the beginning who 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 doubted this story and and wrote about it at the time. And it was very, very difficult in the sense that, you know, you you were sort of on trips abroad like with colleagues who did believe her and you're the only you're the odd one out and and it's that's tough but bump into Michelle all the time you know you'd sort of see her at press conferences and things like that and it's it it can be unpleasant you know but you got you've got a job to do and that's what you're paid to do um but the tough thing is it, it it's if you have to go to that person and ask for an interview and that was always the toughest thing. If you if you criticize somebody openly or doubt them, you especially in a country as small as this, mm. you you're you're immediately an enemy. And that's why I think a lot of journalists make the compromises they do. You know, to get access, you have to you have to make those compromises because it's very, very rare uh the athlete who you can actually uh criticize and then ring the next day and say, can we do an interview together? Yeah. But the problem, you know, that I always found was that the newspapers wanted you to be both things. They wanted you to write critically in that way. But then they would say, oh, Ireland are playing, you know, uh, Portugal next week. Can you ring up Robbie Keane and get an interview? And you might have, you know, you might have <laughs> lambasted Robbie Keane for his performance in the last match. I'm just using Robbie as an example. Yeah. You know, but, but that's what it was. And, you know, the, I think all all sports journalists have a similar story in that there's always sort of three or four times in your career when you get close to a sports star uh, and you get incredible access to them, but you have to you have to make compromises. And I did that. You know, I kind of got close to, um, you know, I was good friends with Steve Collins, the boxer. Mm. Um, uh, I was close to Sonia O'Sullivan, but Sonia was great. You could criticize Sonia and never ever worry about ringing her for an interview the next time. It was just forgotten. It was, she was incredible, you know, yeah. like that. But you know, but but sometimes you would censor yourself. You would sort of say, "Well, I'm not going to say that because when I meet them next week, that might be a difficult thing to mm-hmm. have." You know, if it's in the air between us. Um, and I, I, and I think. You know, if you're going to cover sport in that way, just doing interviews with people, you have to make all those compromises. Mm. But I, I, I like. I mean, if if I was a sports journalist now, I would like never ever to have to interview a sports person. I think that's the only way to do it. Yeah. Well, you see, that's why I got this interview with you now, and I'm going to criticize you afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll still talk to you, Tom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just wait for these tweets. Um, all right, here we go. Number thirteen. Do you have it? Uh, I don't. No, no worries. Number thirteen. Um, aside, aside from um, sports and and sports writing and that kind of thing, what's your? Do you have any other great passions that, that you love to follow? Um, I 
do I have any great passions? I mean, I have hobbies, like you mm. know. I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about reading, like and good and good books. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm passionate about. Uh, I, I have um, a ho- I keep bees, ah. and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not passionate about it, but I really enjoy it. You know, yeah. it's something that really. Uh, relaxes me. I get passionate sometimes when I when I watch the news and uh, and I see something that drives me mad. But then on another day, it might not drive me mad. You know, sure. I have days when I have days when uh, I can get worked up about just the most ridiculous thing on television, and then. You know, and then the next day I just say, "What does it matter?" Are we talking politics? Like, or? yeah, yeah, politics. Um, Is it something you'd ever uh, go into? No, 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 not at all. I mean, I, I, I'm not really a compromising person. My, I don't have a compromising personality. You know, I couldn't. Uh, I, I don't think I could make those. Uh, accommodations with myself you know and it is politics is all about compromise and I've seen I covered local politics when I was with Southside and I saw um, you know for uh, just as an example um, Eamon Gilmore and I really liked Eamon Gilmore I still like Eamon Gilmore but when when I started covering Dunleary Ratdown County Council he was uh, the local workers party representative and he I remember you know, he he really, his power base really was built on his opposition to water charges in the 1980s. Um, and he was at meetings in our house, actually, in Ballybrack when I was growing up, you know, talking about his opposition to water rates and how we shouldn't pay them. And then just before he retired from the doll, I heard him on the radio one day to explaining how metered water was going to work, you know, how people should be paying for their water by uh, by by a meter basis, and he'd always said that water was paying for water was a form of double taxation, you know. And mm-hmm. then you kind of think, well, that in in the length of a political lifetime or half a political lifetime, he's gone from believing that to believing the exact opposite. And I couldn't do that, you know. Um, I I I also I just wonder how effective politicians are. Uh, as well, you know, I don't um, I, I, like I, I, I watch sometimes I turn on a Roctus report or something in the evening and and I hear them say, you know, there were furious exchanges in the doll today. And then the camera kind of pans out and there's like six people in the chamber, you know, and I, I don't I don't buy that. Like, I don't I don't believe that this that the world is being changed by these six people talking in the doll. Like, you know, mm. um, I mean, I'm interested in politics, but I I. I, d- I don't know. I, I just don't believe people like Simon Harris and Leo Varadkar um, are going to change the world for the better. Yeah. When you when you talk about politics and then you, you look at your own writing, whether it's, you know, whether it's a play or a book or um, a musical, whatever it is, how much of that do you have to navigate? Is there much, like, is there someone... Um, is there someone like editing you or, or pushing you in different directions or saying we don't want to go here or do you have almost 100% authorship over what you do? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I have an editor who uh, called Rachel Pierce and she edits all my books um, and she's not a silent editor. You know, she isn't, she, she's terrific and it, I mean, she's part of the reason why I'm I'm currently writing book number 19 in the series because it never would have lasted as long as it has without her voice um, in the background telling me don't do that or do that. But 
Rachel would Rachel would kind of give me nudges when she feels I'm you know when she, when she feels I'm not doing justice to a character for instance or not doing justice to a plot line mm. or she feels that uh, a particular storyline is weak is weaker than we had in the last book for instance but Rachel would never ever say to me I don't believe you can you won't get away with saying that or you shouldn't say that for reasons of political correctness you mm-hmm. know um if anything Rachel you know she 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 agrees with me that artists should be pushing the envelope you know we shouldn't all be signing up to uh, you know lists of words we can't say or lists of uh, thoughts we can't have or character traits that you can't have in your in characters you write mm. you know um Rachel would believe like me that that artists are there to push those things is there a is there a sentence or a thing that you've taken on that you received the most backlash for no like i've never really received uh backlash you know um like i think i think about ross i mean he he started off as a really obnoxious character and people knew uh when i was writing ross people saw him as obnoxious and they knew that I, that i was writing him in an ironic way mm. um I suppose the danger is the longer you go on is the the character becomes more beloved. And that certainly happened with Ross that there were, you know, I, I read some of the early columns I wrote now and some of the early books and there are definitely things in there, opinions he holds that I wouldn't write today. And it's not it's not in the sense that I'm sort of self-censoring myself. I, I'm saying I, I, I'm cognizant of the fact that people have a different relationship with the character now than they had all those years ago. So people who are reading Ross when he was when he was 18 years old in school and saying, you know, appalling things about people who weren't in his socioeconomic group, mm. though the people who, who read him, because probably the character has actually become a little bit more lovable over the years since he had kids, I know that those things, if I put them in his mouth now, would actually jar you know, they were jar with me because um, he he. I just can't believe he would still think those things in his mid thirties. You know, mm. and it does happen. I think he's he's probably matured uh, as a character, and I think people's relationship with him because they like him now. It's like I was watching some. I was watching an old episode of Only Fools and Horses recently, and it was on UK Gold. And if you watch those early uh, Fools and Horses. It's amazing how how many uh, politically incorrect jokes there are in them. You know that that Del Boy tells jokes about Irish people. Um, there was a there was a joke about black people. Um, there was a rape joke actually in one of the or one of the I think it was the first or the second series of Only Fools and Horses, which you couldn't possibly have said. You know, ten years later, when twenty-five million people were tuning in to watch the Only Fools and Horses Christmas specials, you couldn't possibly have an Irish character called Brendan O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and it, it is it is that thing of it that when when people's relationship with a character change, when they look on him differently, it's almost like you've got more responsibility. You have to think more carefully about what you say and where the humor is and where the jokes are. Yeah, is that. In in terms of because even if you compare even if you look at uh, with the Coppers musical right and you look at someone like Gino it's it's re- what's really interesting about them as two 
protagonist is like overtly like if you were to like they're not necessarily like likable people from the get go. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it, we, you know, someone having seventy six children or whatever with seventy six different women. Yeah. That's not something that like societally we give the thumbs up to. Yeah. Yeah. That, they have this lovable roguish quality yeah. to them and there's a cartoonish aspect to it as well you mm. know like if he had if he had six children by six different women that yeah. he didn't support I think the audience would go <gasps> you know yes. but because he's got 76 it's funny you know because you and, and that's what that's what cartoons are you know you're taking and when somebody draws a caricature of somebody you, you take a face and you just distort certain features uh, to make it funny, and that's it's exactly the same when you're when you're drawing a character for the stage, you know, for a comedy show. You just take something that there's an essential truth there, and just exaggerate it for comic effect. Totally. Have, has there been is uh, writing for the screen something that has appealed to you, whether it be like a TV adaptation of Ross or like something completely different, like a completely original concept for a pilot? Is yeah. that something that you're interested yeah. in? Yeah, I mean, I've done some stuff. I mean, I. I um, for television and for for um, f- for film as well, you know, like so, I did a book about uh, two or three years ago about Tara Brown, yeah. um, who was the the Guinness heir, um, whose death inspired the Beatles to write um, a Day in the Life, and um, that was optioned for a film, and I've written the I've written the script for that, and um, I wrote a film script a few years ago uh, called uh, Just Not Cricket uh, about a kid who grows up playing hurling and he has the secret life behind his dad's back. He goes off and plays cricket with his <laughs> friend whose dad runs the local Indian takeaway. And it's kind of a, a sort of coming of age, Billy Elliot type type um, film. And I'm I'm hoping that might, uh, there's, some ver- there's some interest in that and I'm hoping something might happen on that in the next year. Um, but I, I really enjoy it. Like, and again, it's, I mean, it's like writing for the stage and writing books. It, it, it was never in my career plan. Like my career plan went out the window about 12 years ago. And now I just go from project to project saying, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. I'll, I'll give that a go, you know, Mm. but I couldn't, I I mean, if someone said, where do you see see yourself? That awful question, where do you see yourself in five years time? I've absolutely no idea. Yeah. I just have no idea because, you know, the the only thing I'm sort of vaguely trained to do, sports journalism, I'm not going back to that again. That's all I know. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm, I'm just enjoying doing things like this, you know, and yeah, I mean, television and television and um, film is something. I'd love to do it, like, you know. Um, I'd love to do more of it. Mm. Um, I did a sitcom um, a few years ago. Uh, um, it was a, a concept for a sitcom that I went to America and pitched it around the, the studios. And um, it got bought by E. Um, so they commissioned me to write a pilot. So, mm. But I loved that. Like, I mean, that was, you know, just walking through, uh, you know, um, all these film studios, you know, sometimes walking through the lot, like, you know, and uh, walking down the street, a fake street where they film Spider-Man to go and pitch to, you know, six or seven executives, your idea. It was such a buzz. I just enjoyed it so much. Across all the mediums that you've written, is there any piece of, like, writing advice that you think stands across them all? I would say the most important thing is, is to learn how to concentrate especially now, especially in this day and age where there's just so many distractions with social media, the internet's always there, television's always there. Um, 
and I, you know, I see it even even in having conversations with anybody under the age of 25 now, the difficulty in maintaining concentration just to talk to somebody uh, for for more than five minutes. It's just so great. And the I mean, the really tough part about writing is sitting down for five hours um, and maintaining your concentration, just staring at that blank screen, you know, that blinking cursor and uh, and not getting up and not going off to have a cup of coffee in the garden. The weather's been so great lately. The temptation is huge to to walk away from the screen, and um, but that's the that's the the that's the first bit of advice I gi- I give everybody now. It's just learn learn how to concentrate. It's and it is a discipline. It really is. Yeah, brilliant. Right, let's give another spin. Okay, here we go. Number forty nine. Do you have it? No. Oh, I do actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah, nice one. Look at that. No, that's not bad at all. Number forty nine. If you could choose one person to interview, I know you said you never want to interview again, but who would it be? Oh God. Um, it was always Muhammad Ali. You know, it was always Muhammad Ali, and I uh, I met him. In New Jersey in two, in 1992, I was covering a boxing match, and um, I was staying in a hotel in um, at the Meadowlands Hilton Hotel in New Jersey, and I was sort of standing outside, grabbing some late night evening air, and this limo just pulled up in front of me, and I saw Muhammad Ali get out of the back, and I just I got to interview him, you know, I have to interview him. And so I was chatting to the the um, bellboy at the front of the hotel, and I said, uh, "I kind of I kind of knew him to chat to, you know." And I said, uh, "Oh my God, is that Muhammad Ali?" And he said, "Oh yeah, he comes here all the time, stays here all the time." And I said, uh, "Can I bring his bags up to his room?" And he went, "Yeah, yeah, no problem." Also, <laughs> he came with a trolley, and uh, we put the bags we put the bags on the trolley and uh, pushed it to the lift. And he had a, a small entourage with him. His wife was with him. And I think he had sort of two or three people with him. And we, I pushed this thing into the lift. And I'm pretending to be the bellboy. Mm. And we got in. And one of his... No, it was just me and Muhammad Ali in the lift. And the minder was about to get in, got called away to do something. And the doors closed. And it's just the two of us in the lift. And... Right. He had um, Parkinson syndrome then, like so he 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 couldn't you know he couldn't articulate and um, it was the tragedy like you know that this man whose greatest gift was talking after boxing was talking mm. he was robbed of his voice you know and uh, uh, I sort of tried to chat to him in the lift but he started doing magic tricks for me you know he started he had this handkerchief and he made it disappear and uh, and then he started throwing punches at me. Like and like missing by inches, like you know, with two inches from my nose, flicking out the jab, and uh, I pushed the, the the cart down to the room, and then we went. And uh, I'm kind of thinking, right, you know, tell him now you're a journalist. You know, I didn't really have the heart to do it, but he gave me twenty dollars for bringing his bags up, and wow. and then you know, and then said, uh, "You a chump," as he said to me, "You a chump." And then off I went, you know. But I mean, you know, if I could, if I could go back in time and interview anybody in the history of the world, it would be Muhammad Ali at his prime. You know, Muhammad Ali in the in the sixties or seventies. Like I, I just think he would be, um, he would just be such a fascinating person to talk to. When you're around those kind of people, like literally the best of all time in what they do. 
can can you feel it? Can, like, is there a tangible thing that you're like, yeah, I completely believe that you are an exceptional human? Yeah, I mean, with him there was, you know, the, the, you know, he had an aura. The, there's no no doubt about that. Like, you know, and and a lot of that is down to the way he walked, uh, the way his, you know, he, he. It's almost like he grew in majesty when he lost when he lost the power of articulation. It was the the the. There was a sort of hush when he walked into a room. You could just feel it, you know. And and when he when he walked, I mean, he, at that point he was he would just kind of shuffle along, and this circle just opened around him when he moved. And and that doesn't that doesn't happen for everyone. But it was just the respect he had, you know, for what he achieved in the ring, um, the victories he he achieved for um, for African American people, um, for you know anti war campaigners, anti Vietnam War. Uh, campaigners um just an extraordinary character and and a man of his times you know like there are you know if 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 Muhammad Ali had been born in the 80s he might have been quite you know just a, a sort of bore you know not not boring but he would have been just a really really funny clown type character probably but mm. because he was born when he was he was just the right right person for that time yeah sweet amazing right we've got 10 minutes left we'll okay. try squeezing a couple all right, here we go. Next out the gate, we have number 40. Do you have it? Uh, no, I don't. No. no worries. Number 40. The question is, if you weren't the nationality you are, what nationality would you choose to be? <laughs> oh, I think French. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt. For like, the petulance. You know, <laughs> no, just, they're just, just the Gallic shrug, <laughs> the language, the food. You know, like I'm one of those people when people say, oh, the, you know, French people can be very arrogant. I always just think, well, they can afford to be. They're French, like you know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I, I spent a bit of time in Paris over the years, just covering various sporting events, and I used to love just going down and using the metro and you know saying things in my leave insert French, and they just laugh in your face, like you know. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you try to speak this beautiful language with your Ballybrack accent, you know? And um, I, 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 no question, French, all the way. Nice one. All right, sweet. All right, here we go. Next hit the gate, number 57. Do you have it? No. All right, number 57. Um, is there one thing that everyone likes that you don't like? Um, uh, the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What what what's the issue with it? I I I thought it was a bit dull actually. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a bit dull until the I mean it's a great ending. I think it might be one of those movies that if it had a different ending every it would have been straight to DVD or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. But the ending of it I think just kind of made it better, you know, seem better than it was. I don't know. And, and also it's just uh it's like um Peter Griffin says about the Godfather, you know, it it insists upon itself. And that's <laughs> what I feel about the Shawshank Redemption. Just leaves me cold every time. Yeah, Just, yeah, yeah. And I've seen it loads of times. Like yeah. you know, I, I can't. I, you know, no one can say you haven't watched it all the way through. Yeah, I've trying. watched it all the way through. I just don't get it. All right, fair, good answer. All right, number fifty-eight. Do you have it? Uh, no. Um, in terms of artistic creation, what drives you to do what you do? Um. Just, I mean, things like, you know, with 
uh, Coppers, the musical, and with the Ross books and the Ross plays, it's just making people laugh. You know, mm. it's... I, I just I love making people laugh and it's been in me since I was a kid. My dad is very, very funny. My mother was very funny. My brothers are all very funny. We grew up in a house with which was just full of laughter. And when we all sat around the table and it's still the same, like we all have dinner together on a Sunday. It's who who's the funniest, who's the biggest clown around the table, who can make everybody laugh, who can get gag of the day. Like, that's it. If everybody says gag of the day, that's it. You're just made up. Yeah. And. It's always it was always like that growing up. And when I was um, when I was in school, I was born in England. So I was kind of exempt. I was exempted from Irish for a couple of years. And when I went into secondary school, I I, I took Irish, but I was just hopelessly behind everybody in the class. So I was kind of I almost sort of checked out a bit, you know, and this great teacher and she used to let me do this thing. Uh, She assigned me these essays uh, like my life as a ping pong ball or, you know, my life as a shoelace, which I would write just funny essays. And the end of the class on Friday, she would let me read them to the class and and just make every, try to make everybody laugh. And that the feeling of that laughter, of reading something that you wrote and everybody laughing at it, never, ever lost. I, I, I still remember the thrill of that, you know. And it's exactly the same, like when I write something for the stage, it's it's just sitting in the seat. And actually, there's a, there's a surprise element as well of what people will find funny, because often it's not the things that you think they're going to find funny. They laugh at a different line. Um, but just the laughter. So I suppose all of the comedy stuff I do, the, that's the dynamic. It's just making making people laugh. It's a joy. It's an absolute joy um, to hear people laugh at something you've written, you know, mm. and um it's quite a noble ambition as well, I think, you know, to to make people laugh and bring them pleasure. Totally. What what do you find more nerve-wracking? Is it the first, say, or, or, let's talk about a play specifically or, or a musical or something. Is it the first table read with the cast? Is it the first preview when it hasn't been read? Is there a point where you're kind of like, I don't know, is this, does this work? Yeah, but see, I get I get nervous going to see plays that I haven't written. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I, there's something about... There's something about live theatre. And I, I didn't go to the theatre much until I met my wife. And um, she's she's huge into the theatre. And and then I started to go a lot. And I think one of the reasons I was always nervous, I'm nervous that somebody's going to forget a line. I'm not talking about stuff I've written. I'm just talking about in general. And <laughs> when somebody does forget a line or if somebody corpses, my whole, like I'm like, I tense, I'm just tense watching theater yeah and it's great it's a fantastic experience i saw um i saw the price uh on on broad just off broadway last year and danny devito was in it and when we talked about art earlier actually i should have mentioned that probably ahead of um, book of mormon but it, it i mean it was an amazing amazing thing to see on stage you know and uh but I realized after I had this headache afterwards and it was just from being tense. Like, you know, it's some live theater just makes me that way. But when, with something I've written, I'm t- I, it's it's all the way, you know, you're all you never know. You just don't know what's funny until you put it until other people are sharing it. And if you you write in a script, you're living with that script for five, six months and jokes you've discarded you're always thinking, was that actually 
was that a really funny joke I've thrown away? Like, for instance, we had um, with the last Ross or Carl Kelly play uh, Postcards from the Ledge, mm. Rory Nolan uh, plays Ross and it's a one-man show. Yeah. And I had this line in it where he's talking about um, his children and raising kids and he says, he has this line, he says, um, uh, he says, children, you keep them alive, that's the job and everything else is gravy or as we say on the side of the city, you. <laughs> and we cut that line and afterwards Jimmy Jimmy Fay who directed uh said I cut it and I thought Jimmy cut it and Rory there was some debate between us as to who cut it. Yeah. And I think it was cut because it sounded the 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 lead into it sounded a bit sentimental. I thought that's a little bit over sentimental. And I think that's why it was cut. But we lost this joke about Zhu, which I didn't think, I thought was a throwaway thing anyway. And about four days from the end of the run in the Gaiety, Rory Nolan, I was having a pint with him after one of the shows. And he said, whatever happened to that line? And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I can't remember why we cut that. And he said, what if I say it tomorrow? And as, as happened, I was bringing friends in the following night. And he says this line. And it brought the house down, right? It brought the house. Everybody started clapping. And there's like, I mean, 30 seconds of clapping because he said, as we say on this side of the city, je. it's 30 seconds of clapping afterwards. And that doesn't often happen, no. you know, in the theatre. So you never know. I mean, and I'm probably, you know, as poor a judge as anybody of of what's what's actually funny because yeah. with an audience you'd never know and do you think in that instance that was because there was that like even with Rory he knows he's thrown this into a different part of the script there's an edge to his delivery he's probably a little bit unsure or do you think it was the actual sentimentality of it and the fact that it was heartfelt for a minute and then he just subverts it and flips it yeah. what do you think it was or is it a marriage like was that reaction standard then was it always getting that applause break yeah, it did. From from then on, he did it for four more shows and right. every single show was exactly the same response. And afterwards, I'm, 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 as I'm walking out of the theatre, I can hear people saying, that was a great line, wasn't it? To each other yeah. about you, yeah. you know? And and that was the line people were taking home with them. We left it on the floor. Like, that was that was, that was was the director's cut, you know? And, and I, I don't know. I think... I think it's probably, I mean, the idea of calling gravy jus, I suppose, speaks to that sort of Celtic tiger pretentiousness that people are still aware of. People remember that, like, you know, where you couldn't say gravy, you had to say reduction or jus or some really sort of pretentious sounding thing. I think there was that. But also it was the sentimentality thing. It was the, and I've always been sort of conscious of that with Ross. If you give people two or three sentences of sentimentality, you have to pull it back by saying something that just kills everything they've heard before. Totally. Yeah. Amazing. Right. We'll give it one more spin. Sorry, my answers are very long. I think, we, I don't think we've even had six. Oh, this is, <laughs> this has been great. This has been great. Right. Here we go. Last one. Number 28. Do you have it? Uh, I don't. No worries. Oh, number 20. Kind of an interesting way to leave it on. Number 28. Do you believe in love at first sight? Um, no, I don't think so. Not, not, I mean, just probably because it hasn't happened to me, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I fell in love with my wife, um, very, very soon after meeting her and getting to know her. Mm. But, um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, look, I mean, I certainly, I certainly believe in attraction at first sight and I believe in attraction that, that feels like love and uh, it's probably nature's way uh, 
to get you to procreate. I believe in those sure. chemical things. Sure. But love it, love at first sight. I, I don't think so. Yeah. No, that's a terrible thing to say for a writer, isn't it? I definitely won't be writing rom-coms. I, think. I, I know, yeah. I mean, it's it's not the cinematic <laughs> answer, but it, it's quite possibly more. You know, the way we we do have that cinematic thing in us that we, we that's how we expect our life to go. You know, when our loved ones die, we're going to be li- standing next to them in the hospital holding their hand when, you know, they close their eyes and the candle goes out. and 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 often it doesn't happen like that. It happens when you're... You, you leave your loved one and you go down the corridor and you have a cup of coffee, you know, yeah. and that's what happened when my mother died, you know, that I was sort of by her bedside. We were all by her bedside and I went down to get a can of Coke and, you know, and that's that's when life happens. It happens when you're off doing something else, you know. Yeah. Um, and with that, do you think that that was, you know, the way they say that sometimes that the person, they they, they, they don't want you to even witness it, you know, that way that they, yeah. they want the other person to be gone and that, yeah, no, I don't think so. I, I, I never put, I never, you know, put those type of interpretations on things. I just think they're too convenient. You know, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm an atheist, like, so I don't, I don't believe in celestial powers or, or anything like that. And I, I don't, I don't believe there's, there's a greater, you know, there's, a, there's a greater power controlling the universe. I don't believe in fate. I don't believe in any of those things. I believe in coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that, uh, you know, life is mostly just random acts, you know, random things that I walked here today. You know, I crossed over the road on the way here. If I'd left five minutes later, I might have been hit by the number 49. But, you know, that's that's how I look at life. Like I do look at it as a, as a series of um, coincidences and random acts and unfortunate events. <laughs> Brilliant. Sorry. <laughs> what a way to end. Perfect. Um, Paul Howard, thank you so much for coming. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, Cheers. great talking to you. So guys, that was Paul Howard playing personality bingo with Tom Moore. And Paul, if you're listening, a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it. It was a pleasure to sit down with you. It's kind of mad. Paul's someone whose books I read growing up. I mean, the Ross O'Carroll Kelly books were like such a pillar of like our childhood because we kind of used to, you know, spoof the rugby school lads as someone kind of coming from the countryside. And, you know, it was always just a bit of gas, like the senior cup. Like on some level, we were probably a bit jealous of it. On another level, we were just kind of like, what on earth is this? Um, so those books just perfectly encapsulated that and it's amazing to see how Paul's managed to keep that character relevant over you know the guts of 20 years it's absolutely uh, incredible um, and then to have such an amazing journalistic career behind him as well and a play and a, you know as a, a musical theatre writer and a playwright it's it's just bonkers this the span of this guy's work um, and to be such a nice fella on top of it all um, kind of is the icing on top um, as I said it's our last week on stage get out and see Copperface Jacks the musical I guarantee you it is an incredibly good night out there's been people who've come and see the show and I'm not exaggerating four and five times uh, that is the rate of laughter that this it comes at you so fast that sometimes you're missing jokes because of the fact you're still laughing at the last one it's just amazing um, it, it literally is a laugh every ten seconds uh, and it's so fun to just buzz off audiences like that night after night um, as always a huge thank you to the boss woman Erin Lindsay for mixing editing and producing this podcast we could not do it without you Erin you are a star a uh, huge thank you as well to Leah Moore and Anthony Manley for the deadly theme music as always to Connor Nolan for our beautiful artwork um, and of course 
to Alan Bennett and Paddy O'Leary for having us as part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Uh, what a network it is to be part of. Uh, and I'm delighted to be here. Uh, guys, please tune back in next week when the exceptional Peter McGann plays personality bingo with Tom Moore.